0: Kia ora everyone. this is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson, and my guest today is Dr. Mike Joy, who's a freshwater ecologist and advocate for environmental protection. Thanks for coming along, Mike.
1: Um, yeah, no worries. good to be here.
0: Yeah, so I mean we're hearing we've heard, everyone now knows about flattening the curve. It's been kind of heard loud and clear, um, but scientists and others have been talking about flattening the curve for for decades when it comes to carbon emissions and trying to change um, biodiversity loss. And and there's been a lot of um, talk now about how we can use this as the restart we need and kind of channel some of the energy into um, changing uh, environmental problems or using the energy to uh, transition, I suppose. What do you think are some of the tools for or, Things we can learn from this exercise that can help us transition into solving some of those environmental problems.
1: Well, I guess first and foremost is that we can change. I mean, now we've just shown we can. I mean, up until now, up until this crisis, you know, um, it was so plain that we needed to change. We needed to massively change, and nothing happened. Um, and and suddenly, um, because something's you know right in our faces, I guess, and and government did realize that they had the mandate to to make really tough changes, and so they have so I'm hoping that the lessons from this I mean this is you know I've got to be honest, this is the first time in a couple of decades that I've felt positive about the our future is that um, you know suddenly out of all this inaction we have we have some action and so I think it's a fantastic opportunity this is this is so much. Uh, this is like a, a, a warning. It's a gentle, gentle slap um, to get us to wake up. Um, it could have been so much worse, and climate change will be so much worse if we don't do something about it. And not just climate change. I see this, you know, COVID as this virus, as just another symptom like climate change and biodiversity loss and the other things that, that we know are so crucial. Yeah, do
0: you think it's the the fact that this is so urgent or so kind of apparent. That's why uh, we have responded, whereas these other issues are sort of slow burning and people generally live in in that kind of the the moment rather than these, these long form problems that they can't really see or they don't feel immediately apparent.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's got to be it. I mean, you know, when you're talking about and people could see the graphs and they knew that they we had to do something within days or within, you know, because we knew that within a couple of weeks, you start to see this, um, you know, this this kind of exponential rise in the number of cases and deaths. So people could see it's an urgent, real problem right in front of them. Whereas all these other issues they keep hearing, the public keeps hearing Or, you know, we don't have to do anything till 2030 or or something's going to happen by 2050 or something. So as soon as you put a date like that on it, I think the general public just go, oh okay, cool, we can worry about that in another 10 years time sort of thing. So it's the the urgency and it's the feeling that it actually is the realisation that it's actually hitting people that we know could be us or our parents or our grandparents or our friends. And so... You know, I think there's a yeah a, 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 it's a combination of things but it it's about reacting to real threats that are right in front of us versus a threat that's you know maybe later on you know and we we're, we're just hardwired as as human beings to react to you know we've had 100,000 years of evolution teaching us to react not to react about not to worry about things in in the far off distance but to react to things that are happening right now yeah
0: i think i think the one eye-opener is now people appreciate non-linear change so yeah i think hopefully from this we can now help people understand that the way that the earth or the climate system responds is non-linear just like this is and yeah. this incremental increase in temperature that we're seeing today and and the impacts of it are not um, just gradual forever. And, and we will see this intensity really scale up with, uh, you know, just a few more. So we're at 1.1 degrees now, we go to two degrees or, or to three degrees, that, that change doesn't just ratchet up like that. And as, as does the impact on the, the biodiversity and, and, and that's, that's only one part of a lot of these problems. I mean. What are some of the, I mean, the science and the community have really got behind this issue and, and really kind of worked together, but what do we have to do to try and get community buy in and businesses and, and others to work together on some of these environmental problems where they've historically pushed back, even though the evidence is right there um, in our face as well?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of, I'm hoping and I get the feeling that, uh, that a whole bunch of people have, have suddenly the, the lights gone on, you know, in their brains that uh, the way we live is actually, you know, the uh, the consumption rates that we're at, the the way that we as a, as a human population have outgrown the planet. I think a lot of these realizations are coming home to people, plus uh, the fact that you can, in many cases, there are many people realizing that they can live a more simple life and it's still fulfilling and, and it doesn't, you know, and, and, and quiet streets, and and um, you know, being at home more often, and doing stuff in the garden, and being more resilient in your life is actually really cool, because there's there's been really strong influence from advertisers to convince people that the only fun you can have is when you're spending lots of money and traveling around the world and that kind of thing. So I think you know, I'm I'm hoping that there's a lot of kind of reevaluation of what's important in people's lives, and that will come out of this. Mm, with it, you know, with much, more, much easier to, to, to convince people that um, we do need to think about the future and how we live.
0: Yeah, and when we think about that, and we think about different land use in New Zealand, and I, I know you've spoken um, a lot about different types of land use and, and issues, and I want to kind of firstly talk about the Canterbury Plains in particular, and we've seen over the last 20, 20 years, 30 years, this rapid transition from sheep and beef to, to dairy farming in New Zealand. And in particular, the Canterbury Plains has had a massive impact for a variety of reasons. But we continue to farm this area, we continue to create more uh, freshwater issues and, and problems with soil and, and other things. But why, why is that area in particular? Not a good place to be doing dairy farming, and why should we really be rethinking how we use that land?
1: Well, I think it's really clear, um, you know, in the Canterbury Plains that, um, you know, one of the big issues for dairying the way we do it is the way we currently do it is is nitrate and the, nitrate and a bunch of pathogens that come from cattle, and and the problem with the Canterbury Plains is they're very light soils so you've got you know basically just alluvial outwash plains from the alps so very very quick pathways from what happens on the paddock to what gets through to groundwater and then into the spring fed streams and into groundwater aquifers you know that exacerbated by the fact that you've got uh, most of the human population or nearly i'd say all all but a couple of the human population drinking groundwater so they 're drinking directly you know they're, what they 're drinking is is almost directly influenced by what 's happening on the land, um, and the fact that that was dry land and so to make it into dairy farming, you had to you know instigate a huge amount of of, um, of irrigation, so pumping out of groundwater out of rivers um, onto the land to enable that dairy farming to happen, which is just flushing the system even faster and pushing that uh, nitrate and those pathogens and uh, through into groundwater. So anyway, and a a bunch of um, pesticides and and other uh, things that are used. So basically a really, really dumb place to do intensive farming. And the dumbness of it has shown up very, very quickly with um, elevated levels of nitrate in drinking water. The linkages that I've been talking about where... It may be a coincidence, but the highest levels of nitrate we find in the country are in Canterbury, South Canterbury, and Southland. And they're also the areas where we have the highest rates of colorectal cancer. We have the highest rates in the world, in New Zealand, and in the developed world. And we have the highest rates in New Zealand and, and Canterbury and South Canterbury. Uh, sorry, um, and Southland. And those other places that the drinking water nitrate levels are really high, and there's heaps of evidence from around the world of a strong connection between high nitrate levels in drinking water and and cancers, and so that's just the the tip of the iceberg of, I guess in a way it's like the uh, COVID coronavirus thing, and that you can actually see a direct impact on on health outcomes as well as. You know ecosystems and rivers and aesthetics and fishing and all those other things that we 'd lose in this process so um, yeah it 's kind of a, a a case study in in how to to get uh, land use how, how to do everything wrong when it comes to appropriate land use
0: there 's still pushback now isn 't there
1: there's still people
0: fighting against this and saying that this evidence is is uh, isn 't true and
1: what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always vested interests that will fight. This is exactly the same as smoking and cancer. You know, we had the the whole process of the industry denial. An industry don't always directly deny it themselves. They they have other channels that they use. They've got lots and lots of money. So the fertilizer industry and the dairy industry, um, you know. Fonterra's risk of stranded assets if they reduce dairy production milk production in this country um, you know so there's a lot of money that's tied up in making sure that quiet any voices that kind of question what they're up to here and you know this the the good old you know the old problem that we've always we 've had for a long long time about GDP. So you know it's increased GDP in Canterbury, even because you're not counting the costs, or you are counting the costs, you're just adding them to GDP. Um, so so you know that there's if it, you know the crazy thing is that hospitals get busier, say with um, colorectal cancer cases, and you spend more and more money, the health dollar, then it increases GDP for the region, and you spend more and more money trying to fix up, clean up rivers, or if you have to spend huge amounts of money finding another water supply for all of the residents of, of Canterbury, you know, millions of, or over a million people, you know, that'll be a huge cost and that will be added to GDP. So, you know, while while we've got this kind of dumb measure of, of, um, of economics where we ignore the costs of the externalities and we just count everything as a positive, you know, as long as money's turning around, then, you know, there's a... The, the industry and the proponents of the, the people that are making money out of this harm will, will keep saying that it is, and they have a captive audience of people that are, that are in the system already, the land values that are tied up, the irrigating, irriga- irrigation companies, um, huge amounts of money to be made out of exploiting that environment, so that's what we're up against.
0: Yeah, and you, you do get that paradox where you have these health issues and, and, and that sort of thing. And you haven't even addressed, actually, the, the ecological impact, really. Um, but in terms of the freshwater impact on the environment, and, and I think just re- recently another report's just come out, illustrating that um, a huge amount of New Zealand's rivers are still in really poor quality. What, and I think that we don't really think about the, the freshwater ecosystem the same way that we do our, our birds and, and other wildlife, but what sort of state is our freshwater eco- ecology in New Zealand in some of these areas compared to a, a healthy, um, pristine, um, freshwater environment?
1: Yeah, that, I mean, that report out today from Ministry for the Environment just, you know, nails home the issues that we have. And I think probably, you know, for your listeners, the the most obvious um, statistic that tells you the problems we have is that we have three quarters of our native fish on the threatened species list. And that's that's higher than any other country, any other developed country in the world by a long shot. You know, when I, I just wrote a paper on it last year and, and that You know, places that we would think of as as having lots of polluted rivers, you know, the the average is about 30% um, native fish on the threatened species list. We're 75%. We're, you know, and, and the fish integrate everything that's happening in our freshwater ecosystem. So that's probably this, you know, what I would call one of the strongest signs of our problems. And if you have a look at that report from Ministry of Environment, um, the, you know, the state of our rivers for 2020, um, the 2020 report, you know, almost everything that's measured is, is getting worse. And the main places that it's a problem are in urban and rural catchments, farming catchments and city catchments. And the important thing to remember, though, is that the urban catchments make up less than 1% of the length of waterways in New Zealand. So, you know, there's often this call from the farming industry, oh yeah, but the, the townies are really bad. Well, they are, and we are, and, but it's, but it's in proportionally, about half of our river length is in pasture farming catchments, and 1% is in urban catchments. So, you know, you've got to go to where the biggest problem is, and the biggest problem is from the way we do farming. It's not that there's anything wrong or harmful about farming. And if you went back 30 years or 40 years in New Zealand, you could see how we could farm without having all those, nowhere near that kind of impact. Um, it's about intensity. It's about the way we we pour so much fertilizer in to, to maintain stocking rates that are double or more than what we had you know, a couple of decades ago. We import huge amounts of palm kernel. Um, we, we're the biggest, importer in the world of palm kernel, so a whole bunch of environmental issues around the palm industry and we're part of that by taking the palm kernel and feeding it to our cows we we make milk out of fossil fuels by using um, nitrogen fertilizer that's made from fossil fuels so a third from karpuni or from maui from our taranaki gas fields and two-thirds from the middle east you know these are all totally unsustainable uh stupid ways to produce a product that in in the case of dairy this milk powder you know a small proportion of it goes to things that people um would recognize and know like like milk and cheese most of it goes to this kind of nobody really you know can nail it down this milk powder that goes as a commodity to be sold on world markets where it either ends up as, as um, infant formula, so replacing breast milk, and, and most of that is in, in Asia, and the poorer countries in Asia, and the rest of it goes as a filler in, in junk processed food. So it's, you know, the kind of justification that we're feeding the world just does not hold up at all. It's, it's just a commodity junk food filler. So,
0: so I mean, you, you talk about some of these, these smaller products, and there's a call to yeah. go from from uh, volume to value. So we reduce yeah. the amount, and, and then we create these high product, high value products. But is, do you think the reason we aren't doing that is largely because so much of it is just being sold as uh, milk solids and infant formula, rather than these high value um, dairy products that we could be selling with a with a um, much lower environmental impact in the way that we create those products
1: yeah well it's but of course the problem is the tyranny of distance and so we're you know we're at the we couldn't be much further from our markets than what we are you know so only a few percent of the milk products that are made in New Zealand are are, are consumed here a big big markets are overseas and, and if you you know it's perishable the only thing you can do with it that to make it not perishable is to to dry it and turn it into milk powder. And so we do this crazy thing where we use all of that water to produce that milk and then we dry it back out again using mostly fossil fuels. So most of the most of the Fonterra plants that do the drying are using coal. And and so, you know, then you take all and, and but the but the point of that is that then it's not perishable anymore. So it can sit in stores and you can ship it around the world in, in no great hurry. Um, Whereas if we those value-added products, I don't I don't know that. Can you think of many of those kind of value-added things that don't have a relatively short shelf life and are, you know they're bulky and and hard you know they're expensive to transport. I mean things like cheese and yogurt and milk and all that kind of thing. It's it's they're not really suitable you know for going long distances. Um, so you know that's that's one of the limitations that we have on. That's why we re- really need to rethink um you know what it is that we actually grow on our land here and there's you know there's such a strong call around the world um you know for plant-based alternatives to to dairy and meat but also um local and and you know globally what's going to come out of this this corona covid thing is that there's going to be much more realization that globalization is a problem, you know, because it enables you know diseases like viruses to spread so quickly. So there's going to be a really strong push all around the world for localization, and which is going to make it even harder for us to, to export um, food products long long distances. I think.
0: Well, be, so, be, I mean, in, in New Zealand, being with primary industries being such a huge part of our um, economy. I can't see how that would be entirely feasible if we, you know, we depend on trade and we depend on all of these exports. Um, and I agree that the the milk solids is an issue, but generally speaking, I think that we, we make, I think, 40 times more food than we consume. I, I'm not sure if that's the exact figure, but it's something yep. like that. Um, mm. And so it's such a critical part of of New Zealand. Um, so how can, how can you see that localised, model working um when, when it is such a huge part of what we do or, or do you just imagine we need to be innovative and look at different uh industries and different opportunities and, and start exploring synthetic meats and milks and start exploring other types of uh, uh, ventures is that the sort of line of thinking where you you you're going
1: yeah for sure i mean i i totally get it how important you know primary industries are but that's because we've kind of made that happen because we've, we've you know, I mean, just look at what we do with logs. It's exactly the same kind of thing. We grow these trees and then we ship off these unprocessed logs for someone else to make the money on overseas. And then we buy the product back again. So, we, you know, I mean, so we need to completely rethink what we do. So I'm just thinking that as far as the, um, the food production side of things, that the, plant, the growth in plant-based foods means that not not just for our local market but globally um growing plants and and being really good at that and making really good products that are that are seen as healthy and clean and green will give us i mean to me that's our that's our big marketing advantage here is that perception from the rest of the world that we're clean and green you know and we're so lucky we still have that perception given the the way we've trashed the the ecosystems here but so that's our that's our opportunity, and so yeah, we need to diversify way more than what we are now, and not have all of our um, all of our eggs in one basket or all of our milk bottles in one basket, like we have at the moment. We need to be we look looking at lots of different ways of doing it. I mean, people have been talking about that. I've got a book on my bookshelf here called Getting Off the Grass, um, written by um, Sean Hendy and Sir Paul Callaghan. Uh, a couple of years or oh, probably ha- uh, five years ago now, but just the you know pointing out that that we were just we have been for so long going in the wrong direction and just we don 't seem to learn we just keep, seem to keep want to do the same thing, even though it 's causing us harm
0: one of i think one thing we do see in some situations is we are seeing farmers who are restoring wetlands, we are seeing them planting a lot of natives, trapping. Um, So there are some good stories and there are farmers doing great work in trying to restore a lot of that biodiversity and and promote um, the the natural systems while they still uh, farm. do, Do you see, a good example of that or do you think it's it's still only a small group of farmers or is the, that cost factor just too much for a lot of farmers because they're still just kind of trying to get by um each month or, or what sorts of um examples have you seen as you kind of travel across the country
1: yeah i mean i i see i see all those things that you said um so there are many you know particularly with dairy many farmers who are indebted up to the eyeballs and and I know, you know, some of them are friends, and they want to change. And the, you know, when you when the bank pretty much owns your farm, um, you you buy less fertilizer, and they will jump on you straight away because they don't, you know, as far as they're concerned, you know, it's like a factory, and the more fertilizer that goes in one end, then there must be this, you know. A, a matching amount of product that comes out the other end. Don't, not un, you know not understanding the nonlinearity of, of a biological system, and so there is that. There's the the indebtedness, the high high um, you know land values that have got out of control, which means that a huge proportion of the farmer's time and the cow's milk and the and the amount of water used, all of those things just go to pay interest to those you know handful of you know overseas-owned banks that that you know provide the the finance for that that re- those really high land values that we have at the moment. So that's a huge issue. But yeah, there are some fantastic farmers, and there's really good change happening. I you know personally, I don't think that any of the legislation makes very much difference at all to farmers. Um, and so what I see happening is, is a, there's a there's a movement, a ground-up movement of change um, going under the banner of, well, there's, there's organics and there's, there's um, m- regenerative farming is, is kind of the coverall term for a whole bunch of really good things that are happening on farms. And that's getting away from um, using fossil-based um fertilisers, getting away from using a whole lot of those chemical treatments, um, really concentrating on looking after soils and that kind of stuff. So there is there is a great you know, ground-up movement happening there. Um, there is slowly getting out the realisation that um, despite Dairy New Zealand and the fertiliser companies fighting it for so long, there is a realisation now that you can farm a lot less intensively and make more money, um, less inputs and uh, more profit but again it's it's difficult when you've paid too much for the for the land in the first place so I see a whole lot of great initiatives happening around the place but they're, they're small and they're slow and and I feel that the the, the threats that are coming for uh, you know for a, a lot of our uh, sort of primary industries especially dairy um coming from those plant-based alternatives they're coming from the awareness of basically the social license so the awareness of 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 customers on the harm the fact that animals are killed that for dairy that that all those calves are produced every year that are killed and and you know the, the calves are taken off their mothers and the impacts around you know there's a there was a lot of pressure on those Southland farmers and and seeing cows up to their necks and mud and that kind of thing, you know, so the social license for dairy especially is 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 falling, is failing really, really fast. So I think the change that we'll see will come from, we're already seeing a big drop in land values. This um is going to knock the economy as well, which is going to see more uh, problems with land values, I'm sure. Um, so, you know, Fonterra's in trouble uh, economically. You know, so I think there's there's a lot of, you know, warning signs out there for the industry that they've left it too late, that they've ignored people like me and others that have tried to say that this is, we're going the wrong direction here. They've listened instead to industry telling them to buy more fertilizer and buy more of our stuff. Um, And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it won't be the, it won't, I mean, I've been involved for the last couple of years and um. The changes to the national policy statement around freshwater, and you know the industry's fighting that tooth and nail. They have all the way through, and now they're saying, "Oh, you know, you can't make us change now because of COVID." And so, I don't think it's going to be—it's going—it's not going to come from legislation. It's going to come from their own industry falling apart if they don't get ahead of the game and and see the writing on the wall and change the way they farm and the products that they produce
0: so yeah so effectively the the market will determine the outcome rather than the policy or uh or the environmental impact ultimately a bit bit like how we used to use sheep and then we moved to synthetics and then interestingly enough now we're seeing a comeback in
1: and, yeah, uh, yeah. Products, so sort of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's the same kind of thing. And and again, you know, there were people running around, you know, warning those those sheep farmers that you know, so you had the same thing, exactly what you hear now around, uh, you know, plant, these plant based things are never going to threaten, you know, our animal based industries. Exactly what the the sheep farmers were saying in the day, and and so yeah, and so when it comes back, it tends to be. You know, like you're seeing with with the sheep, um, with the wool, it comes back as you know a premium product like merino wool, and then you have a whole lot of changes that happen on farm, and 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 so the boom comes from much more, uh, you know, more more sort of uh, green, environmentally friendly, sustainable farming practices that. That go with that product, that premium product that people will pay that extra money for Merino because they know the Merino story and they know about the product. Um, you know, so that's that's yeah, that's where we need to be heading, I think, when it comes to what we do here, is to to you know add the value, um, make sure we do it sustainably. That obviously the the future for us, being far away from anywhere, is is to to grab that premium product, um, the premium market, and to have products that that match our uh, clean green image because it's going to be worth so much to us in the future
0: yeah i think that premium product is a, is is absolutely the way it's going to go and i think that's a, a great um a great point to to end the conversation on do you have anything else you want to add to that mike or
1: uh i i mean we're going to see we do any day now to hear um, what the what the changes to the freshwater, you know, that we've been working on, what the government's going to, whether they're going to implement the uh, what the uh, the scientists have suggested around what should be measured in New Zealand, um, you know, I, I'm not holding out a huge amount of hope for what will happen, because I like I said, I don't think you know government legislation is always too small, too little, and too late. And, and I I just hope that the farmers of New Zealand don't listen to federated farmers and, and these, these old school kind of, you know, head in the sand types like, uh, you know, um, the New Zealand first people and who just want to do what we've been doing and think that we're okay with that. I hope that they see the signs and realize that they need to change and, and, um, look after themselves, protect themselves by uh, not, not doing the old stuff and changing to low input, low intensity towards regenerative farming. And then they will have a, a really, and we, we all will have a much more positive future then. Yeah,
0: well, th- thanks so much um, for talking today, Mike. It's been really fascinating.
1: No worries. Uh, it's good to talk to you. Cheers.